You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah. This is Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and I am pleased to be talking to philosopher, Associate Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Melbourne. Good morning to Holly Lawford-Smith. How are you? Hi, um, I am good today. Excellent. Now, tell us a little bit more about you. But firstly, we do have a qualifying question. What is a woman? Mm, qualifying question. Difficult. Uh, I hope I get it right. A woman is an adult human female. Excellent. I think we need did to I send pass? Them... You did pass. You did pass. <laughs> Our Prime Minister, as you know, didn't pass. Uh, now, a little bit about you when I was looking up. You are actually a Kiwi. I'm a Kiwi. Yeah, I grew yeah. up in Taupo. You did something that many New Zealand women were unable to do, and you achieved the ability that you were able to stand up and speak at the Speak Up for Women rally in Melbourne with Kelly Jane Keane. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's amazing because watching what happened in Auckland, it did make me retrospectively really grateful that we were able to have our event. And it was quite shocking, actually, because I think a lot of Melbourne women felt like that. We were just watching the live stream and sort of like really distressed actually (laughs) because it's not only like upsetting to see that New Zealand women weren't able to even speak on this topic, but you can also relate to it so much, right, because you were in that exact context a week ago or two weeks ago or whatever it was, and so you can sort of get the sense of all that contempt and hatred being targeted at you personally, like, that, that's us, like we are this kind of gender critical movement all around the world. And so the way that any of these women are treated anywhere, actually, Glasgow, Birmingham, wherever, it's, it's, it's all of us, right? So you really, you feel that a lot. The Melbourne event was somewhat stressful in the sense that like there was a big red flag socialist, trans activist, Antifa protest the police did have to really kind of hold them back and that felt stressful I I remember constantly sort of looking back over my shoulder checking that the police line was still holding and kind of sort of vaguely worrying what happens if that line breaks what's their plan or what do they want like how at risk are we physically but you know when you're not doing that casting your eyes backward it was actually really cool like it was so nice to have Kelly J there and She's so charismatic and and strong, and I think everyone felt really happy to sort of be together and be doing something public and visible. I found it surprisingly fun to speak. Like I thought maybe I'd be nervous or something, but I I almost a little bit became like a show off, like <laughs> like enjoying the crowd or something. So yeah, I don't know. I've got quite fond memories of the day in a way it was more the aftermath that was an absolute shit show yeah well you it's funny how you mentioned all of those ones there behind the police line now in this country we didn't hear anything about those but according to our media it was awash with nazis and white supremacists oh man the media reporting on what happened in melbourne was just the most dishonest despicable insane thing i've probably ever seen like firsthand Because, of course, when the media lies about other people, you don't know it's a lie, right? So Mm. you really, it's really only revealed to you the depths of the dishonesty and the propaganda when you were there and you saw what happened. And then you see it. You see the headline presenting feminists 
using the word anti-trans. You see them claiming phrases like stood arm in arm with Nazis or Nazis came to support the, you know, the anti-trans, like all of this language, so misleading and just so descriptively false and obvious to find out that it's false. Like there was independent media there and you can just go and watch their live stream. No, even though almost like so many newspapers showed photos of the neo-Nazis and they were always by themselves. Isn't that suspicious? that they were just by themselves, if they were at a feminist protest, shouldn't they have been in the crowd supporting the feminists? Like what, but yeah, somehow no one was suspicious about that. No one really asked questions. So for me, that revealed a really shocking level of misogyny in Victoria, which is really a state that kind of prides itself on being super progressive. I mean, this was just people gleeful about accepting this narrative of like these terrible bigoted fascist women <laughs> uh, who, who would dare to say no to what men want man says he's a woman then he's a woman like who are these women with the audacity to say no to him like it was just yeah it was it was surreal I think what unfolded here was so unexpected for everyday yeah. New Zealanders so this station literally launched the week that that happened so Oh, wow. Timing, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm in my 50s, and so I grew up through the 70s and 80s. So for me, the understanding of feminism is what is in my own experience. So then, of course, it's that, that traditional third wave type feminism. And I know a lot of my contemporaries, a lot of women that I are mums like I am that you chat with who are not really politically or socially aware. Yeah. All of a sudden saw images because really harrowing images came out. And there was no way that they could hide things like terrifying, threatening, angry men yeah. yelling at women. Yeah. And finally, I think a lot of women, particularly my age, middle, middle-aged women, a number of them asked me after I started this job, I'm like, Marie, what's going on? So just explain for listeners this sort of evolution of feminism, so from where things started to where they are now, because I think a lot of people are psychologically sort of stuck 20 or 30 years back and may not have realised that things have sort of moved on in feminism. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think maybe the main movement that helps to explain what's going on now is the sort of ever-increasing or ever-moving drive to inclusion. That's like that is the maybe central and defining value somehow somewhere along the way from the second wave on I think there was this thought like you know maybe only elite women have the time or something to do feminism these are you know women like who's who have the sort of support of their husbands or something and then okay so there's certain voices that are getting missed out of feminist advocacy I'm kind of skeptical about that narrative, to be honest, because when you actually look at the sorts of things that feminists were advocating for, it's very often things that serve the interests of most women or some of the worst off women. But I, I, I am a bit skeptical that it was just like privileged white women trying to close the Hollywood pay gap or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. I just think that's false. But okay, let's pretend there was at least some of that going on where the people involved were somehow not representative of the full spectrum of women and so certain issues did get missed out as feminist issues. And so there was a sort of push like, yeah, toward inclusion in a way that I think started off as being kind of helpful, a good thing, right? So let's make sure we're definitely representing the interests of 
women with disabilities, where there really is a kind of intersection between, you know, you're more vulnerable to sexual exploitation, for example. So these things are squarely feminist issues, but they kind of more severely affect particular minority groups of women. But that drive, I think, that really became a sort of big feature of third wave feminism and what now gets called intersectional feminism kind of came in and tried to like bundle a lot of different like minority group features together. And it sort of made a slip from like looking for specifically feminist issues in minority groups of women to combining the issues of distinct minority groups. So instead of thinking women with disabilities are more vulnerable to sexual exploitation and sexual exploitation is a feminist issue, the move would be Jewish women face particular issues as Jews and as women. So feminism needs to be about Jewish issues and women issues together. And of course, once you do that for all the women (laughs) in all their glorious diversity, you've essentially ended up with a global justice movement because that's going to get you almost all of the social justice issues in the whole world on the whole kind of smorgasbord. I think the logic of that, even if it started out with good intentions, has really kind of just really opened up what even is considered to be a feminist issue or a kind of part of the feminist project. And of course, then it's not that surprising that we've ended up with this obsessive focus on gender minorities and trans people and kind of rolling all that under this, I think, false flag of the LGBTQIA+. That's, I guess, how we've got roughly where we are today, this idea that, like, trans and gender diverse people are the most vulnerable minority and somehow that's then the job of feminism to, like, include and champion rather than women's issues, like abortion or whatever. Well, it's almost like inclusionary feminist includes everyone. Except women. Yes, except women as women. And actually, I think this was so fascinating. I don't know if you saw that Vice debate earlier in the year. I wrote about this for Quillette because I was so interested in how they presented the diversity of women. They clearly, they, they wanted to present themselves as having a debate between women about feminism with viewpoint diversity. But what they ended up doing was getting like two white women but who were conservatives, I think US conservatives, one's Australian but lives there now, and then everyone else had these further features like disability or race or whatever, lesbians or whatever. But then the way that the debate was presented, it was almost like the people with legitimate issues are the ones that have these further features of identity. But really the women who were only affected as women were sort of presented as these like, privileged, sort of like even anti-feminist type. There was no representation of a woman with no further identity features that are marginalised, right, just a wealthy, white, straight woman, but who had experienced like childhood sexual abuse or who had struggled to access abortion or who had been terribly impacted by pornography and come to have like self-harming or body hatred issues. There was just zero representation of what I would call issues of like women qua women, like just the issues that women experience in virtue of their femaleness or their kind of socially imposed femininity. I find it fascinating to see that play out at the moment, that it's like you're only legitimate if, as a woman if you can come up with some complaint that you share with a man. So your, your racial complaints are valid, but your complaints as a woman are not. And I think that's really such a revealing sign of the kind of social tolerance 
of and for feminism, including by women themselves. Gender is the new battleground, though. Gender yeah. is the new battleground, not only for women, but also with an intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this will be the Alamo, that this ideology will potentially die on? I think so. It's interesting because it's felt so slow and so it's hard to have a realistic sense, I think, for me of like exactly how many people have woken up and where we are in that peak the world trajectory <laughs> like mm. I think I am quite optimistic that once people really know what's going on and especially once women really see what they are standing to lose they will fight back I'm not totally sure of where I think we are in that stage now it's like in Australia it feels very recent that there's been kind of any attention and progress at all like even a year ago it was just like one female politician saying something and then the whole nation coming down on her so hard. I think the sort of debate like gender identity replacing or displacing sex, whether gender retains the sort of second wave analysis as being this external thing imposed upon people on the basis of sex and we think that's bad, or we shift to this idea that it's all about identity and self-determination and self-curation. I think that battle has a lot of really interesting and complex moral and political issues and it will bring people people get fired up once they get into it and once they learn what's at stake so yeah I'm confident that will happen I'm just not confident about what stage both of our countries are at at the moment yeah I have a theory which I yeah. repeat often in the show yeah. but I see that the ideology can only flourish or perpetrate in an environment of affluence mm -hmm. yep that affluence now is beginning to be placed under pressure with mm -hmm. financial constraints, particularly in a lot of the families that have people who are deeply embedded in the ideology. Because you don't see this ideology, you're not seeing it in Central Africa, for example. Yeah, it's yeah. not a thing. Yeah. Okay, so that is one of the things that I do wonder is whether or not the one thing that turns it around isn't just the issues themselves like trans ideology and the mutilation of children in our schools, grooming that goes on there, but it's actually the financial constraints that people get placed under that they actually have bigger things that they need to worry about than whether or not they misgender somebody or get their pronouns wrong. That's tricky though, right? Because it's not like that the people who will come under financial pressure are the parents, not the children. And I do think a lot of this is coming from sort of children slash adolescents slash like early 20-year-olds. Of course, it's not coming from nowhere in them. It is like a generational issue that's being pushed by outside diversity programs, training in schools and by corporate diversity and inclusion initiatives and by the UN, like it's in the kind of zeitgeist. But yeah, I'm not sure whether like parents and families kind of coming under financial pressure will be enough to get the kids to realize they have bigger fish to fry and it is there are of course some adults going along with this but it's kind of more rare and it's more embarrassing right like you have a friend and they come out as non-binary you just a little bit want to die for them like sorry like, that's not you know what I mean when you're so embarrassed yeah. for them but you just want to die a little bit like it's just yeah. like that stuff's kind of for the kids right? it's, it's yeah. like a, a like an eight-year-old punk or something I don't know it is a, like a social contagion, you know, yes. and I, I've got two teenage sons, so I talk to, to my sons about this all the time. Yeah. And 
what I'm seeing is it's the young women who are particularly vulnerable. Yeah. I worry. If I, I wouldn't want to have daughters, two of my closest friends have got two daughters same age as my boys, and they're worried. They're worried yeah. about all the pressure that women suffer, and especially young women, and all of these ideas and the pressure to conform and to fit into a peer group. Do you see that peer group pressure being a factor? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. But I think it's probably not the whole story. So I I certainly think there's a strong social contagion element to this. And actually, I don't know what else it could be given the huge change in the sort of demographics of trans. Like you, you need an explanation for that. Why was it in the 60s mostly middle-aged men and now it's mostly teenage girls? Like that, that's not a... There's nothing you can say about like what they might want to say about sexual orientation. It's just like, oh, well, with greater acceptance, there came greater numbers. Fine. There's not a complete shift from it being 50-year-old men to 17-year-old girls. Yeah. <laughs> that, that needs an explanation. So I certainly think there's a social contagion element. But I also think there's probably just like many other things to say too, right? So what is creating in girls the impulse to disidentify with femininity or womanhood or femaleness, like however you want to tell it. And then maybe that's like, there's a lot to say there, right? Like maybe porn is a huge part of the explanation because you're getting access through the internet or you're getting sort of your first sexual experiences. Boys are expected to be able to do horrible things that, that you don't like, or you're seeing this class of persons just being treated in this particular way in porn that is like, degrading and hateful and you don't identify with that position like you don't want to be that human that's for that youth so I just feel like once you take all those things into account like yeah even just sort of beauty objectification and the pressures young girls might feel about that and their constant comparisons with other girls on social media and you, you put once you plug the sort of full maybe feminist explanation of what sorts of pressures girls and women are under in our society, maybe it's no surprise that girls are going to be fleeing the category girl. And okay, here's this thing that's being branded as a shiny and cool alternative. Okay, maybe they're non-binary, maybe they're trans. It's got to sort of be an aggravating factor that their friends are sort of rewarding that or teachers or adults or whatever, you can get attention and esteem. But I think we also need to look at the like, yeah, the causes of discomfort that are causing girls to want to disidentify in the first place. And all of that is just to say we still desperately need real feminism here. There's <laughs> quite a lot of stuff to work out and all that stuff is core feminist issues in the sense the second wave understood it, not this like super inclusive theory for everyone sense that the third wave has in mind. And it's also the desire to have the conversations. Like, as you said, there is a story to be answered there, but no yes. one's wanting to have the discussion or explore it. Another one for me is the overrepresentation of people who are on the autism spectrum disorder yeah. within the trans ideology. So that yeah. there is definitely something that needs to be explored and answered there, but it doesn't seem to be allowed to, which then brings us to what you do. Can sometimes things get a little bit crunchy at the faculty lounge for you? I mean, you've been quite outspoken <laughs> in your work. How has that been received? How are things, because I mean, Melbourne isn't exactly, you know, it is a bit of a woke utopia. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, there is no faculty lounge, or if there is, I don't go to it. <laughs> I avoid some of those more hostile uh, possible social situations. 
of course I know that campus is divided over this and I know yeah that it's been divided on multiple occasions uh, over the years as these issues have kind of like flared up on our campus or in our, our state. Give us an example how this started for you, how you sort of got your toes wet in this. I guess the first controversy on campus was that Victoria was passing self-ID to the Birth, Deaths and Marriages Registration Amendment Bill. I think this was 2019, if I remember correctly, and I decided to have an event. And now what a perfectly normal thing for an academic to do, right? There's new legislation, it raises interesting issues, a potential conflict of interest between different minority groups. I use that word for women and some people find it irritating, but between the group of women and the minority group of trans, whatever, that's so normal to want to have an event to talk about that. And I got experts, right? So I got a, a professor of law to talk about the, the issues in the sort of sport, uh, Sex Discrimination Act and sport. I got a couple of professors who had taught feminism before. Like it was an it was a credible lineup. But that, you know, I think that resulted in, like, there was a big protest outside. There were some some sort of Equality Australia sort of penned and uh, what do you call that, like a, a petition or an open letter or whatever it is, sort of condemning the event. Various staff got involved. So all of this, of course, is happening before the event. Yes. I mean, you'd potentially expect it if they'd attended the event, had right. the discussion and then offered a review or critique of the event. But yeah. they tend to do that ahead of time now. They do, yeah. I've noticed that for almost everything that, that I've attracted great resistance for, it's almost always like predicting what they think a turf might say. <laughs> and then they project all the season delusions onto that. And then they're railing against you for this thing you haven't even done or said yet and probably wouldn't say and probably has nothing to do with you. It's really baffling. And the actual event, yeah, I think we just sort of had a, a discussion about, um, you know, the replacing of sex with gender identity and what might be at stake there and, like, things that we should be thinking about when we bring massive legislative reform in that throws out a central human category. <laughs> like, there's, there's absolutely enormous repercussions of doing that, as you'll know, because in New Zealand you were having the exact same discussions yeah, at the same year time. or so later. Yeah, so... I don't know. I think these it's a very clever propaganda on the part of the opponents to just say, like, there's nothing to talk about here. Anyone who wants to raise issues about this is just a hateful bigot. Yeah, that's kind of clever politics, right? Because then you can avoid having the discussion ever at all. And I do sort of <laughs> grudgingly admire it would be going too far because it's absolutely infuriating. But I can see that it's like a good political tactic just to cast your opponents as doing hate speech so you never have to engage with them and you can always get yourself off the hook for having to make the arguments yourself because you oh I absolutely cannot legitimize a hate speaker <laughs> oh cool so you just get to stay home cart lobbing insults um and never back up your argument <laughs> yeah yeah it's bad intellectual but it's good politics and also to they the hyperbolic language oh yeah that is insane I have a thing called the woke word of the week that I do mm -hmm. each week on the show. And last week was violence mm -hmm. because but the actual definition, I mean, the dictionary definition and the UN's definition are two quite different things. And so the UN definition essentially is if someone says something that you find slightly irritating or offensive, that could be deemed as violence. Oh, that's, wow. That's, that's concept not, creep. Yeah. yeah, that's, oh, a concept creep. I'm going to write that down. I've not heard that <laughs> one before. It is, yeah. I just find that incredibly infuriating, but in itself, 
yeah. it is quite dangerous because that goes on and it's that sort of language and acceptance that mm-hmm. next minute turns up in legislation and you think to yourself well how did that get there yeah no that's right I mean I've been battling that at the University of Melbourne so they, they had a sort of uh, gender affirmation actually I'm now mixing up the policies it was either in the gender affirmation policy or it was in the new free speech policy and guidelines on free speech maybe it was in the latter anyway there was these, there were these kind of slippery concepts right about harm or about like what well-being so if if something was going to like harm the student community or harm the well-being of the students then maybe that event could be shut down on those grounds and again you think well yeah if, if the university was really clear on what these concepts meant mm. like it had to be high risk of a riot so student physical safety was at risk then yes maybe you can shut the event down if if that just secretly means people getting offended <laughs> So you're now giving veto power to students to weaponize the claim of offendedness, even whether they are or aren't in fact offended. Really, you're just giving them a way to shut down events they don't like. It's so irresponsible of a university, given the function of a university. That concept creep issue is sort of playing out everywhere. And actually, it's it's almost about to be playing out in every workplace because Victoria has just introduced these provisions for like psychosocial safety. And I don't know if you've seen, I have like used them recently <laughs> because the, I've made a complaint against the University of Melbourne to WorkSafe because they've kind of failed to take sufficient action on this campaign of harassment that's been going on against me all semester. But I do have these sorts of reservations, which again, I wrote about l- last month for Colette about like whether universities should be allowing these kinds of protections because there's a sense in which they go too far, right? Like they mm. they risk shutting down free speech on campus because everyone's got this claim to their psychosocial safety being compromised. Probably it would be better if we all sealed ourselves to possibly offensive speech rather than, than that we were all constantly weaponizing our alleged trauma against each other and no one could say anything. I mean, as they say, the best way to cure hate speech is with more speech. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny, I've written here, safety, does the barn door swing both ways? Well, hopefully it will. In your case, it will swing both ways because that's one thing I've certainly observed is that people from that ideological place, critical justice place, will shut down conversation, want to restrict speech, claim harm, claim that they need to protect and they do not have to justify listening or engaging in a conversation because as far as they're concerned their arguments are settled and they won't and particularly if they claim violence or harm Mm -hmm. they won't entertain anything else but when the boot is on the other foot they're Mm -hmm. like oh no we no you can't accept that and that is what i find so so sad because university is the place that you should be able to hash these ideas out Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think students, maybe we're just not doing a good job as academics of inculcating new students into that culture, especially if the wider society is sort of failing in that respect of creating resilience. Maybe it just has to be part of every first year's first week, right? That like you learn what are universities for, what's their role in a democratic society, what are the core principles 
on which they're founded. What is academic freedom? Why does it matter? Why do we need it? Right. And then maybe students then have a kind of healthier respect for the academics that are actually using their freedom within their role to pursue dangerous ideas or controversial ideas or offensive ideas. I think, yeah, that you don't have the freedom to do that. You don't actually have freedom. So, yeah, it's kind of, I'm, I guess we're just like experiencing these issues now and the hope will be that the universities or at least some of the universities show leadership in getting the balance right, like res- responding to these problems and, yeah, really coming out in favour of academic freedom and, and the protection of this kind of speech and helping students to understand that's what the university experience is all about, like challenging ideas and maybe upsetting and the kinds of like philosophies like that, the kinds of ideas that like pull the rug out from under you. They're extremely disorienting in some ways. You can, I just remember spinning out for weeks about whether there's an external world when I'm like 21, you know, it's like that's, that's kind of the whole point, like to take some intellectual risks and challenge yourself. So yeah, maybe that's on us to make sure we really communicate that so we don't have the kinds of students that are then feeling like they are entitled to make complaints when they feel uncomfortable about a classroom discussion. Have you actually seen a change in the students that have passed through your classrooms in the last few years? I mean, are they more curious? I find curiosity is something that is beginning to lack in amongst kids. Are you seeing that as a academic? I'm not, but I think I'm not in a good position to see it because I'm a philosopher and we are probably the the most curious discipline. <laughs> we really attract the types of students that are enjoying spinning out about whether they're a brain in a vat or whatever. So even if there are hardly any of them anymore, they're still the ones that we're getting. And there's another factor on top of that, which is like anyone who's aware of the political disputes around me they're not going to take my class if they feel like they might be unsafe or they might feel like my politics is violence or whatever. So not only am I getting philosophy students who are generally awesome, I'm getting the resilient philosophy students that are happy to have the discussions around the kind of stuff I'm involved in, or at least aren't like repelled by the mere knowledge of what my my views are. So I think I'm probably having a curatedly excellent experience. <laughs> These are silver lining though, isn't it? To all yeah, of this. It it's sort of like a, a self-willowing <laughs> progress or a self-willowing process uh, to make sure that the quality of student you're getting in front of you is actually yes. really highly engaged. So that in it itself is, is yeah. a good thing. It's a really good thing. Like I've just had consistently really good experiences here. Um, so, yeah. The Oxford Union, there was a little bit of a brouhaha across there. Tell us a wee bit more about that. Oh, yes, that was um, highly entertaining. I, I I read Kathleen's most, Kathleen Stock's most recent Unheard column where she was sort of comparing her talk at the Cambridge Union, I think, the year before, and then her more recent talk at the Oxford Union. That was uh, absolutely remarkable. I would highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it because she was sort of describing the extreme hostility of the Cambridge experience compared to, like, getting quite a lot of support at Oxford and it's for feeling like a much more friendly audience, despite this one guy who glued his head to the floor and sort of disrupted the event until he could be removed. I don't know what that shows. Like, is that an Oxford-Cambridge distinction where Oxford has a healthier attitude toward controversial or offensive or whatever challenging speech? Or is that a difference a year makes to Kathleen kind of having left Sussex and 
really like come into her own as a public intellectual and not giving any kind of a penny more about anything, <laughs> just becoming a really like charismatic and interesting and strong speaker, like are people more interested or more supportive of her? Is it that the whole debate has just shifted so positively between last year and this year in the UK, which I think it certainly has. I think there's a lot more support and it's become a lot more of an obvious issue in their politics. Yeah, I don't know quite how to explain that difference, but it does seem like a really positive uh, difference how that went. We were talking about before we started recording, um, I was letting you know about my cancellation experience, which was, you know, all the way, well, gosh, I dodged several bullets from 2018 to 2020. And then in 2020, I finally threw it out there. And I won't lie, cancellation isn't fun. Yeah. But I'm now a firm believer that it sets you free. And it's actually quite nice now to move forward. I mean, what brought me to this role is having the bravery now to go, you know what, I'm going to vent my spleen once a week to the world (laughs) uh, because I can and I want to. Do you find that too? Has that actually now increased your academic freedom now that you've actually, in a way, had all that happen? And you're like, well, you know where I stand now. I'm going to get on with teaching these young minds. Yeah, it's interesting. I definitely felt like that the year before last year. So 2021 was when I maybe had my most dramatic cancellation attempt. And I think once I came through that, I felt like, okay, if that's the thing where I'll come out of it in the clear, then I'm fine. Okay, I'm not going to do anything more dramatic than that ever. Like that that was the line probably. I was probably right at the line. So extrapolate out a little bit more on that for our listeners. So I started this website early in 2021 called No Conflict, they said, noconflictthesaid.org, and I was gathering anonymous testimonies from women about their experiences in women-only spaces being disrupted by trans women. But what I wrote on the website was disrupted by men. So I was just asking, in general, if a man has been, you know, in your domestic violence recovery group or your women-only choir or whatever it is, this huge range of women-only spaces, if men have started using them, how does that impact you? How do you feel about it? What sorts of negatives has that involved? And that came out of me having uh, interviewing uh, Senator Claire Chandler for the LGB Alliance and talking about the fact that Australian states were passing these laws to replace sex with gender identity, which would be mean these men being able to just include themselves in women-only spaces, services, and provision, but us absolutely not gathering any data about the effects of that. So we just don't know whether women are sort of self-excluding from the women-only swimming session now because it turns out there's men going there and that conflicts with their, you know, religious beliefs. We just don't know because we're not we're not tracking any of those effects. So I thought step one just at least get some testimonies in so we can start considering what the issues might be and learn a bit about stuff we've been overlooking. And then the big sort of public reaction to that was that I'm vilifying trans women by calling them men and by like highlighting stories about them being sort of behaving negatively. So being predatory or being somehow like bringing negative experiences into women only spaces. And it's true. I wasn't asking please tell me about the time you peed next to a trans woman and it was completely fine. That wasn't what the website was for. Some of these accusations were like, 
yeah, okay, for, for philosophical reasons, you, you should consider them, right? Like, is this demonizing a minority group by focusing on its worst actors? Like, what, these are reasonable questions. The opponents weren't reasonable. They made all these ludicrous allegations, like this is a research proposal, but she doesn't have research ethics. Well, it's not a research project, and they had no grounds to believe that, but they just alleged it. Oh, she's a turf, so she, she shouldn't be teaching feminism, so we're going to try to get an inquiry into her teaching Right, so all of these kind of, um, yeah, accusations and then like subsequent investigations uh, of those, those, those allegations. But yeah, I guess I ended up thinking, okay, this has been thoroughly investigated by the university and I've been cleared. That's probably about the limit of what I want to say, right? I want to say trans women are men. I want to say it's a real problem that men have started including themselves in women-only spaces. It's bad for women. And I want to talk about the ways in which it's bad for women. That's probably about the most that I need. So I did feel quite liberated after that to be like going on with things. <laughs> and it's interesting because this year and more recently, there's a sense in which what happened sort of relating to the Let Women Speak rally, I was again then kind of subject to disciplinary proceedings, but I was more confident that they were stupid because of course you can't discipline a member of staff for going to a feminist event on the weekend. That is absolutely none of the university's business. And they are like so obviously overstepping by even thinking that's their business. So whereas in 2021, I sort of thought, oh, yeah, I can see how there's a question here. <laughs> right? I couldn't see that at all this time around. And yet I felt like the way they came at me this time around was actually much more severe. So this time around, the dean sort of sending an email out to my whole faculty, like denouncing the rally. That was much more dramatic than anything that happened in 2021. Do you think that that, though, has been fueled by the fact that those in authority have been able to get away with so much when it comes to speech, liberty and freedoms across the COVID years, that yeah. once the COVID panic has subsided, that they now think that they can roll this out into other avenues? Because certainly in Melbourne, you guys were locked down quite mm. judiciously for a long time. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I hadn't kind of thought about it in that connection, that, like, we've become docile and now the leaders are used to having a certain sort of, like, authority that they just cheerfully keep wielding in other matters. Because I know yeah. that certainly has happened here. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'd have to think about that. Because, I mean, some of it is coming from the politician, like um, John, Pes John Pesuto's reaction to Moira Deeming in the rally, and Dan Andrews obviously just had an absolutely ridiculous, hostile uh, reaction. But, you know, something like the University of Melbourne leadership or the dean, I don't know if that can be explained in that way. I think maybe it's just like it's more about feeling so morally confident and that's just, yeah, trans activism has become a dominant discourse. It's so widely accepted on the left and the left is in power. So I think it's just more like the overconfidence of the people who have power about the rightness of their views. And it doesn't even occur, it's just invisible to them that that's a personal philosophy or an ideology that it's not widely shared. Mm. Professor Grant Schofield here wrote a piece uh, several weeks ago, I don't know whether you saw it, he was talking about the inherent bias politically and ideologically within universities and the inability mm. to be able to speak freely now as a faculty. Absolutely. Yeah. member and how yeah. frustrating that is and I mean I know people in the academy here who have to be exceptionally careful now 
of what they study, what they say, what they publish. And that in itself is a censorship that I think is quite dangerous. Yeah, I I think that's right. I saw something recently from the New Zealand Free Speech Union, so I'm wondering if that was the thing, because it was about like a survey of how free, I think it was just staff in universities feel to talk about controversial topics or to work on controversial Mm -hmm. topics. And it was pretty shocking. And again, I don't quite know who to put the responsibility for that on, right? Is it like, because academics, they do have quite a lot of protection in terms of their role, much more than almost anyone else. Maybe judges are the only ones that like have a longer security, career security or whatever. So there's a sense in which you do have to be prepared to take a bit of flack and, and use that position. But then on the other hand, maybe we should be blaming, yeah, censorious students and faculty and members of the public who are just really imposing their personal morality on everyone else and it's the fact that they're creating these awful threats and sanctions that do make people legitimately fear for their jobs and livelihoods so yeah are the academics responding rationally to the threats or are the academics being a little bit cowardly given the protections of their role and maybe all that's actually just kind of playing out now right like maybe people feel scared but then they want to watch what happens to someone else so okay I'm performing it all in the public theatre of Victoria let's see if she gets fired okay she didn't so maybe you are allowed to do that so maybe again this is just a kind of live experiment where people will get a bit more confidence after certain controversies have been resolved I'm not sure well, confidence and courage too. I yes. think it does take a certain amount of courage to put yourself out there. And you've certainly done that. Where can people find more information about you and some of the read some of the work that you've put out in recent times? Probably my website's the best uh, one-stop place. So that's hollylawford-smith.org. I just kind of keep that up to date. Um, if I've written anything for the media or done an interview or a podcast or my new book coming out soon, that's kind of there. Just, yeah, everything is basically there. Excellent. Well, Holly, time's flown by. I can't believe how fast <laughs> yeah, time has gone. I really <laughs> do appreciate the time taken. Hopefully you can get back across the side of the ditch soon and catch up with family and friends. And yeah. Keep up the good work there at the University of Melbourne. This has been Holly Lawford-Smith. I'm Marie here on Counterculture. Don't disappear. There's still more great content and music here to come on RCR. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.